Hello and welcome to this extra inning of The Ballpark, a podcast from the failing U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Mohid Malik, U.S. Projects Assistant at the Phelan U.S. Center. For this extra inning of The Ballpark, I spoke to Professor Glenn Lowry, who is the Merton P. Stoltz Professor of the Social Sciences in the Department of Economics at Brown University. He's the author of The Anatomy of Racial Inequality, originally published in 2002 and again published with a new preface in 2021. Professor Lowry also hosts his own podcast, The Glenn Show. Professor Glenn Lowry joined me on May 28, 2022, to discuss race and identity politics in America. I think it would be great to begin this episode with a discussion on what we mean by identity politics. So, what is identity politics and in what ways does it manifest? Well, I think it refers to a viewing of a person's participation in political activity in terms of their, quote, identity. So that could be race, that could be sex, that could be sexual orientation, that could be religion. Uh, But seeing the person in terms of some identity category and then having their political uh, activity framed in those terms. Why do you think inequalities between black Americans and other racial groups in America continues to persist? And since the publication of your book, The Anatomy of Racial Inequality in 2002, do you think that the measure disparities have worsened? Let me respond to that question by calling your attention to two books that I genuinely admire. One of them is called Identity and Violence, and the other is called Ethnicity Without Groups. And it's by a a UCLA sociologist called Rogers Brubaker. Now, I mention these books because Sin, uh, the great economist and philosopher, recalls growing up in India during the time of communal violence when the Indian and Pakistani states were created. And he invokes a scene where he watches a mob of Hindus uh, hacked to death a Muslim. And he goes to his father and he says, why? He says, it's because he's a Muslim. And why wouldn't you kill someone just because they're Muslim? And this is how he begins. He begins with this dilemma, this violence that's framed in terms of identity. And he wonders why the human identity of the victim didn't take precedence over the religious identity. And he goes on to say, um, sin in this book, identity and violence, the illusion of destiny. He, He goes on to say that this one-dimensional way of thinking about identity, we see a person as, in his case, a Muslim or a Hindu, is a mistake. It's, it, 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 it's an illusion that people are many things, not just one thing. They have their religion, but they also have their, their interests, they have their political orientation, they have their professional orientations. They, they, people are many things. It's a multi-dimensional framing, which is the correct way to think about a person, not a one-dimensional framing. Brubaker, in this book, Ethnicity Without Groups, problematizes, I think that's the right word, he, he, he calls into question the actions of entrepreneurs who frame public events in a particular way in order to emphasize the identity dimensions that they are trying to mobilize on behalf of their own interests. There could be political actors, they could be ideologically motivated, it could be journalists. 
And he says, we should think about ethnicity always being mindful of the fact that there are agents who are, whether it's in the press or whether it's in the politics, who, who have their own agendas. A policeman in an American city has an altercation and shoots to death a citizen. The policeman may be white, the citizen may be black. Was it a racial incident? Well, if you frame it that way, you can make it into a racial incident. Did we mean that the policeman killed because the person was black? Or did it just happen that the person was black and, and, and came into the encounter? Well, those are framing moves that are made when the incident is discussed. I'm, I'm taking a long time to answer your question because I want to be understood. Uh, you ask me, why has identity politics emerged as such an important and salient feature of American political life and the role of race in it? And I'm trying to say two things. I'm trying to say that ideally, we should be de-emphasizing the racial dimension and emphasizing the common human dimension of our interaction in American society. But that, as a matter of fact, the racial dimension has come to be more and more salient, in part because decisions are made by agents who have discretion about how to frame particular questions, and they're framing them in uh, racial terms for their own interests. I think political parties, whether they be on the right, and they want to warn white, quote-unquote, white Americans about the danger of non-whites coming into their country, or whether they be on the left and they want to agitate, quote, black Americans on behalf of claims about attacks upon them based on their blackness, these actors are uh, framing controversial questions in American politics in racial terms for their own interest. But if we step back, um, I think the view that Amartya Sen advocates in this book that I've mentioned where we Americans actually have a great deal more in common across many dimensions of our public life is the right posture to take. And that's one reason why I tend to be critical of identity politics. So to summarize, identity politics is seeing important public questions mainly through terms of uh, identity. The fact that we do so more now than we did, say, 25 years ago, and I think that's true, is largely a consequence of the decisions that people who are in critical positions of public influence are making for their own reasons to frame complicated and multidimensional questions in simplistic, overly simplistic terms. And I'm uh, concerned about all of that. I want to explore a little further the point that you made when you referenced the work of Rogers Brubaker by bringing in the theory of political scientist Kanchan Chandra. One of the things that Chandra writes about is the idea of descent-based attributes and how, depending on different political contexts, different aspects of one's identity are rendered salient over another. This is why, for instance, race features as an important topic of conversation in the United States and in particular as a way to differentiate between black and white Americans. But let's say we drop ourselves in Iraq and ethnicity is made salient along lines of religious identity over there. Turning back to the United States, we often hear in general discourse the idea and apparent value of color blindness, that is, to examine social issues and individuals divorced from their racial identity. 
Do you think that this is a useful approach? And in particular, do you think it's useful for how policymakers and politicians should think about various issues? Yeah, I'm saying, uh, and I suppose I will be asked for evidence, I'm saying that politicians and journalists, by framing complicated human interaction in overly simplistic, identitarian terms, encourage ordinary people to think in that way. And that genuine, wise leadership would seek high ground. It wouldn't be colorblind in the sense of being indifferent to these identity differences, but it would look for ways of calling people together by discussing delicate and controversial matters in more humanistic and, and less sectarian terms. I don't know much about Iraq, know very little about Iraq, but... I can imagine shouting from the rooftops, this is a Shia who did this, this is a Sunni who did that, the Shias are moving here, the Sunnis are moving there, is a formula for disaster in the long run in a country that has the potential for such conflict. When an alternative presents itself, which is to talk about what are the common interests of us Iraqis, um, and, and to try to get beyond the categories of, in this case, religious sectarianism, in the United States, likewise, I think if a president says, I'm going to appoint a black woman to the United States Supreme Court, and he makes that a point of his presidential campaign, as the Democrat Joseph Biden, who is president, did do, that that's bad for the country, I'm saying. Not that a black woman serving is bad for the country, but that making political uh, profit out of declaring the intent to appoint a black woman is bad for the country. Better to simply appoint someone who could be a black woman uh, and leave it at that. I, I say that that's being done in the case of this example to get votes. It's being done in order to encourage people to think of themselves as blacks and then to vote in order to promote the interest of blacks. And while that's understandable at the human level, it's also, I think, problematic if it becomes the practice of uh, governance on a uh, wide scale. Would you agree that perhaps one barrier towards meaningful progress in mitigating racial inequalities is the perhaps performative aspects that accompany identity politics? There seems to be a greater fixation at times in wanting to sort out the people in the room rather than in changing overall structures. Yeah, I think I would agree. I think that in the United States now, in the year 2022, we're a very long way from the civil rights movement, and that we've, and I could tick off the list of accomplishments of African Americans, including being elected to the highest office in the land and huge middle class that has come into existence, billionaires who are flourishing within the context of the prosperous American economy, and so on, that the old ideas of exclusion and marginalization based upon racial discrimination are really a relic of the past that the society is substantially open, that the fact of non-European immigration in very large numbers to the United States over this period since the civil rights movement, with people coming from Asia, from Latin America, from Africa, in large numbers, tens of millions of people to the country since the height of the civil rights movement in the 1960s, uh, it's an open society, it's a dynamic society. 
So while there are problems of discrimination based on race, they are minor relative to what had been the historical practice in the country. And that when we see poverty or overrepresentation amongst those who are imprisoned or a low performance in school and uh, achievement gaps and underrepresentation in elite venues of higher education and so forth, we are not seeing the same thing that we would have seen 50 or 75 years ago when we see conflict between police and citizens in American cities, which may sometimes entail a racial dimension. We are not seeing the same thing that we would have seen 50 or 75 years ago. And that the most effective way of responding to the problems that do exist is to understand them as in terms of social class uh, and across racial lines so that political coalitions that are multiracial, or I almost want to say transracial, that are not in, in any way rooted in racial identity, become the framework for addressing these problems. If we think educational institutions are not performing effectively for citizens, we should reform educational institutions for citizens. If we think that the political process is not adequately reflecting the interests of voters, we should address ourselves to the political process in terms of opening it to be responsive to the interests of voters, citizens, voters, not black citizens or black voters. I do think, however, that by thinking in terms of citizen and voter, although appropriate, can obscure certain material and structural realities. One criticism, for instance, could be that by removing the racial component, we're being neglectful of historical processes. Indeed, I think one could effectively argue that if the root cause for some behavioral differences between races in the United States arose from a structural premise, then perhaps the consequences that we see today are also structural in nature. Will this not be a fair criticism to your earlier point? Well, that's what people will say. Uh, they will say, look at the history, for example, of slavery and uh, racial exclusion, Jim Crow segregation and discrimination that affected blacks and that marginalized blacks. They will say, look at that history. Look at the way that urban areas were settled and developed in terms of the location of residential and the segregation and so on, the redlining and so on. They will say, look at the practices in various occupations and industries where blacks were excluded or were very slow to be appreciated and included within the development. And they will say, of course, therefore, we should expect to see differences in behavior. We, if, if we have higher crime rates, if we have a less stable family life, uh, if we have a lower performance in uh, the economy or in educational realm, it's due to this history. I think two things. I think those are plausible claims that are a part of a narrative about the present day that is very appealing, and I understand its appeal to people. But I also think that that way of talking is not especially helpful if the goal is to actually uh, move people forward from where they, where they are. And I think that if the goal is to move people forward, then the emphasis on historical process, which is a given, historical process itself can't be reversed or changed. Uh, maybe we want to go on a case-by-case -case basis and talk about particular areas, but I, I think the, if the goal is to move people forward, then it's the contemporary, not the historical, that is the thing that requires our attention. Let me be specific. 
So we have very high homicide rates in black communities in American cities, very high. Roughly half the people who die from homicide in our country are black, and blacks are about one-eighth of the population. So it's a vastly disproportionate overrepresentation of blacks amongst people who are the victims of homicide. Is that a result of structures of uh, social action that have a historical root, a person could ask? And I think a plausible argument could be made that it is, and we could go into the details of such an argument. On the other hand, if the goal is to reduce the disproportion in uh, homicide victimization, the focus on that historical process I don't think is particularly helpful. I, I think the questions will be, what can we do to intervene so as either through law enforcement or through social development, counteract the processes that are producing uh, this outcome? Those processes are many. They may have to do with drug trafficking and gangs. They may have to do with the culture of gun use and ownership in American society. They may have to do with the way that families raise and discipline their children so as to inculcate in them restraint and patterns of behavior that are less violent, and so on. They may have to do with what is taught in the schools. They, they may, you know, there may be programs of intervention that diminish the likelihood that a person picks up a gun and engages in conflict with another person. None of what I've said there as in terms of remedy is rooted in the historical processes that are part of the structure in which people are embedded. So I think the evocation of the structure of the historical argument is more exculpatory uh, than it is remedial. That is to say, it's more an effort of removing blame, of saying people are not responsible for what is going on because they are, after all, embedded within a structure than it is remedial in the sense of providing concrete solutions for how it is that one would actually change the circumstance. I think all of those solutions are rooted in contemporary politics, which involves not just identity, but it also involves class and social location that goes across the racial identity lines, which is why I would want to de-emphasize the racial dimension of a discussion of those problems. Do you not find categorizing inequalities that exist in racial terms useful at all? Yeah, my inclination would be to de-emphasize the, right. the racial dimension, except in circumstances where I'm dealing explicitly with questions of racial discrimination. You know, if, if I see a, an academic department, an economics department, for example, and I see that there are not enough, quote-unquote, not enough black members of that department, if I think the reason is because talented black people are being overlooked and are not being treated equally when they apply for the positions, then of course I want to invoke some racially based intervention in the case at hand, uh, disciplining or incentivizing uh, the decision makers to be fair in their uh, uh, assessment. On the other hand, if the fact of few black members of that department is a result of relatively few black uh, applicants who are qualified, I, I'd want to address myself to the processes that affect the development of the talents that are being assessed when candidates are vetted for uh, being employed. And those processes, I want to say, are not specifically racial. Those are processes that would apply 
broadly across the society. And, and that's how I'd be inclined to respond to the complaint. There are not enough black members of this department. Well, maybe there's simply not enough black people who are being developed to compete for that job. And when I turn to the question of developing talent uh, in a multiracial democratic society, I would want the, re the, the remedies to apply to everyone, not just to, uh, not just to African Americans. As we begin to think of solutions, I would like to harken back to some of your earlier writing on the effects of network formation and stereotyping in defining one's chances of upward mobility. Could you please outline what networking is in relation to one's development in society and how many black Americans have not had access to the sort of networking that some of their other fellow citizens have had? Okay, so I'm an economist and one way of thinking about the inequality is people have skills and the market evaluates those skills and they get compensated in terms that are commensurate with those evaluation of the value of their skills that they bring to the marketplace. Well, where do the skills come from? The skills are not inborn. They are largely acquired through socialization. Socialization includes education, but is not limited to it. It is also reflected in what happens in the private lives outside of the formal institutional setting. What happens in families? What, what are their peer influences? What norms about behavior and values uh, about the goals in life are they imbued with and so on? And that comes from their associations with other human beings, either within the family, within residential neighborhoods, within uh, communities of affiliation where they say, I'm like this person, I'm like that. Here's my hero. Here's who I want to, here's my role model, things of this kind. So people come to their market and their skills are the result of a develop developmental process. And that development is nested within social network of affiliation and connection to other human beings. I want to say that that is the framework that we ought to be bringing to bear when we think about inequality. And then um, I want to talk about, given that framework, what are the most effective ways in which one could, uh, could intervene? Uh, I want to stress that some of these matters are not easily susceptible to intervention. If I think that all I need to do is pass a law, don't discriminate, and we do have such laws, and enforce such laws, and I solve the problem, that would be a very easy setting. The employers are discriminating. The skills are not so different. But when it gets to the market, the market doesn't treat people in the same way because of a custom of discrimination. Let's forbid that. Let's punish that. Let, let's uh, find ways of getting away from that behavior. That's easy. On the other hand, if I come to a situation where the skills are different, and it's in part because the structure of families is different between population groups, because there are more single-parent households in one population than another, because children are being raised in ways that are less developmentally empowering as a result of these differences in resources. Families are resources for the development of young people. Two parents with two incomes, with two adults in the position of supervising and so on, may be more felicitous for uh, advancing the development of the young people in such settings, this becomes very difficult as a matter of social policy to uh, legislate or to affect. So I, I have to be prepared 
to accept the fact that some inequality is a reflection of differences in patterns of behavior and culture that may have a, a racial correlation to them uh, and that are complicated matters of social organization that we inherit to some degree from the past, true enough, and that the processes that influence the development of these characteristics of social organization may themselves be affected by racial discrimination and, and uh, so on in the past and perhaps even in the present, but, they, but these may not be susceptible to easy policy intervention. So I, I'm, I don't know if I'm effectively responding to your question or not. I think you've introduced a central paradox of your position because the policies that accompany government mandated programs seem to, at least on the surface, address the issues in a very concrete way. Whereas with the developmental agenda that you've just outlined, it seems that the solutions have to be penetrative within one's personal life, that there has to be a more internal reckoning and it can be rather difficult to convince the general public to take advice from government officials on how they should approach such complex issues that concern inequality. So how do you see this discrepancy between the development and bias narrative resolving? Okay, uh, Bohid, I, I think what I want to say here is the civic life of the politics of a country is one thing, and the communal life of uh, a collectivity of people who identify with one another and who have a sense of, of common fate or common interest is quite another. In terms of race, I think there are citizens of the United States, and I think when the government acts, it should largely act in terms of promoting the interest of citizens, not of citizens of a particular racial identity. And I think the mobilization of political action on behalf of the betterment of the society and the promotion of the common good should take place in terms that are non-racial or perhaps better, transracial, where we see the common circumstance of people across racial lines and direct public policy toward the solution, whether it be promoting education or reforming police behavior or whatever, that are grounded in the common human interest of citizens in the civic sphere. On the other hand, if I talk about family life, seven out of 10 black babies in the United States born to a woman without a husband, maybe that's a problem, maybe that's not a problem. I happen personally to think that that is a problem. I think that that is a drag on the goal of advancing the well-being, largely viewed in broad terms, the well-being of black society. What is to be done about that? I think the government can do relatively little about that. No, people don't want to be told by their political leaders how they should live their lives. On the other hand, government is not all of social action. Um, I like to give the analogy of the civil rights movement itself, a political movement coming out of the 1940s and the 1950s, culminating with great successes in politics in the 1960s. But that movement was supported by not only or even mainly civic action, it was driven in very substantial part by communal action, rooted uh, Alden Morris, the origins of the civil rights movement. This is the uh, historical sociologist at Northwestern University who's written an important book about the history of the civil rights movement. And he finds that the social capital and the political organization within black churches was at the foundation of 
bringing about the mobilization, which didn't only include black people, of course, ultimately it grew into a very broadly based movement, or the, the black is beautiful and black power movement. Now, this is a transformation of consciousness amongst ne quote-unquote Negro Americans, that's what they would have said in those days, to affirm those aspects of their personhood that reflected their African origins, the color of skin, the coarseness of hair, the breadth of the nose, and other such features. Black is beautiful. This was a teaching of children not to be ashamed of themselves because of the fact that they were African-descended people. It was a counter to the larger cultural meme in American society that put forward a kind of ideal European visage as what constituted beauty. This is aesthetics. This is a sense of, of, of identity. And the idea was be proud of your African heritage. This was the idea which was successful, I think, in changing the way in which young people thought about themselves, wearing their hair in a natural way and so forth and so on. So what I'm saying is those were not government uh, mobilizations. And is it impossible to envisage a mobilization of consciousness amongst people of African descent living in communities uh, throughout the United States in which the responsibilities one has to one's children was put forward in a uh, vivid way in, in, in which the uh, marginalization of people within the community who are behaving in criminal violence and so on and making life miserable for others was isolated and uh, the condemnation of that behavior was made into a, a communal norm. Uh, I, it, it will sound, yeah, how did uh, John Lennon say, people say, people call me a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. To, to dream this dream of uh, self-corrective transformation of norms within the community, developed within the community on behalf of the interest of the community, um, this is the kind of thing that I would invoke. I think we're just about to run out of time. I don't suppose there's actually much that I want to follow up to, uh, for a question on that. And I do think, and I think most people believe that a lot of the most powerful changes have always been from the bottom up and these grassroots movements. So um, in terms of precedence, I think what you advocate for does have a lot going for it in terms of change that has been brought. So I guess it's just... We'll take time to see how this sort of unfolds throughout the years as people perhaps, whether or not they, you know, they trust their politicians to bring about these changes or that they have to do it themselves. It does seem that this idea of the development narrative is much more of an intrinsic change. And I think that's quite empowering. And so we'll just have to see, I guess, how that <laughs> unravels in the future. But that is all the time that we have. Professor Glenn Lowry, thank you so much for taking the time to unpack some of these really, really complicated uh, issues. Well, thank you, Bohit, for your excellent questions. I don't think I rose to the occasion, but I did my best. <laughs> he did. Thank you. And that's it for this extra inning of The Ballpark. Thanks to Professor Glenn Lowry for joining us in this episode. This extra inning was produced by Mohan Malik, Chris Gilson, and Anderson Tan. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. To listen to all our previous episodes, just enter LSE Ballpark into your search engine of choice. You'll find us. We're free to listen to, and unlike lots of other podcasts, we're ad-free. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. 
Email us any feedback at uscenter at lse.ac.uk or send us a tweet at lse underscore us. And tell your friends about us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the failing U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. Thank you for listening.